0: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. For a moment in time, everything God had said he would do, he did. The creation was complete, and what lay ahead was a bright future. A future where God would be their God and they would be his people. A future in a garden where God walked among them. A future where nothing and nobody could harm them because God was with them. But the serpent said, "'You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened.'" And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, ah, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. his heel. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Some years later, the Lord said to a man named Abram, go from your country, Some generations after that, a man named Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. But then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave this country. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on the people and you have not rescued your people at all. So then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So Moses said to the people, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And on that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign, a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, just go and worship the Lord as you have requested. And so for a moment in time, everything God said he would do, he did. His promises were fulfilled. The suffering seemed over and and what lay ahead was another bright future, a future where God would be their God and they would be his people, a future in a land that was flowing with milk and honey where nobody and nothing could harm them, it would seem, because God was with them. And so in the days, and the months, and the years to come, God would bring this special chosen nation into the land he promised Abraham so many years ago. And there he would establish them as unique among all the nations of the earth, because there he would be their king. And they were utterly untouchable when he was their king. And yet as Moses died... God would continue to raise up new leaders, one after another after another, leaders who were close to him, leaders who would speak to him, leaders who knew him deeply. But eventually, as one of those leaders grew old, the people approached him with a different idea. They said to him, "'You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways.'" So now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So listen, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so true to form, these people received their king. It was a man named Saul. And just as God had warned them, this once faithful man became corrupt and, and there further corrupted this nation that God had kind of stepped aside to install him as king over the people. But nevertheless, this God who would brought this people so far, this far, would not sim- simply turn his back on the people that he loved. And so instead, he raised up another king to succeed King Saul, a man after his own heart, a shepherd by the name of David, a man with a, a faith so large he could defeat giants. And he did. David was a great man. He was a great king. And yet, despite his greatness, even he was not immune to the trap of sin which had ensnared every other man and woman who'd ever preceded him in this life and in this world. Because David, like so many of us, became a murderer, became a liar, became an adulterer, perhaps even a rapist. But what became clear about him was that his greatness wasn't his ability to avoid sin. But it was his deep and sincere remorse and his willingness to seek reconciliation with God. He loved God deeply, despite all of his flaws. And so there in his pain, he spoke And he sang words of praise and words of pain. To him, these were just words of vulnerability. They're words of brokenness. They're words of desire for God's grace and mercy. And even though he didn't realize it as he penned those words, they were more than just words. They were prophetic words that were spoken of a future grace that was to come. And so that David, in his pain, wrote, My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. They, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. He says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue, sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. All my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Church, David was more than just a great king, though. He was a promise bearer. And to him, God had promised an eternal future that was unlike anything that he could have ever imagined or understood. When God spoke to David, he said, David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, David, will be established forever. And for a moment in time, everything God had said he would do, he did. The promises were fulfilled. The suffering seemed over. And what lay ahead was another bright future. A future where God would raise up a series of kings in this land flowing with milk and honey. A future where nothing and nobody could harm them if they were faithful. Because God was with them. But they weren't faithful. And as their world and their kingdom began to unravel, returning them even to an exile, not altogether unlike the one that they had fled in Egypt, God raised up prophets who began to reveal more and more and more of God's ultimate plan of redemption, which was still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years away from fulfillment. We are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter.
1: So we are walking through the Gospel of Luke and we have reached the end of Jesus' long road trip to Jerusalem. He's arrived.
2: So he rides a donkey down the Mount of Olives towards the city and all these crowds are forming and people are singing, Praise the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They are laying down their cloaks in front of him.
1: Why all this royal treatment?
2: Okay, so Israel's ancient prophets promised that one day God himself would arrive and rescue his people and rule the world. Other times the prophet spoke about a coming king who would ride into Jerusalem to bring justice and peace.
1: So Jesus is activating all these hopes that he's that king and everyone's ecstatic.
2: Well, not everybody. The religious leaders, they think Jesus is a threat to their power and so they're not happy. But even more striking, Jesus himself is distraught. He's actually weeping as he rides. Yeah, why? Well, Jesus can see what is coming. He knows that he won't be accepted as Israel's king. And he knows that Israel will keep going down a destructive path, neglecting the poor, stirring up rebellion against their Roman oppressors. And he knows that it will lead to death it breaks his heart.
1: And it riles him up. The first thing he does in Jerusalem is march into the temple courts and he drives out the money changers disrupting the entire sacrificial system.
2: Yeah, he's staging a prophetic protest and he stands in the center of the courtyard shouting out words from Israel's ancient prophets. This is supposed to be a place of worship, but you've made it a den of rebels. A den of rebels? Yeah, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah who stood in this same spot, the center of Israel's religious and political power and he offered the same critique of Israel's leaders that they're rebellious and corrupt.
1: And they get the message and start to plan to have him killed.
2: Which is no surprise to Jesus. In fact, he planned that all of this would happen during Passover.
1: This is the holy week when Jewish people celebrate their ancient story of how God liberated them from slavery and invited them into a covenant relationship.
2: And so Jesus uses the symbols of Passover to reveal the meaning of his coming death. The broken bread was his broken body and the wine was his blood that would establish a new covenant relationship between God and Israel. Jesus was going to die for his people and open up a new way forward. After the meal, Jesus takes his disciples to a garden to pray. And he struggles with the very human desire to save his life instead of sacrificing it. But he overcomes this temptation.
1: And it's here where the religious leaders with the temple guards find him and arrest him.
2: Now, Jerusalem was being ruled by the Roman Empire. And so the temple leaders couldn't execute Jesus without permission from their Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And so they make up this charge that Jesus is a rebel king stirring up revolution against the Roman emperor.
1: Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews?
2: And Jesus answers, you say so.
1: Pilate can see that Jesus is an innocent man, and he doesn't deserve death.
2: But the leaders keep insisting that he is dangerous, so they negotiate a compromise. Pilate will release an actual rebel against Rome, a man named Barabbas, instead of Jesus. And so the innocent is handed over in the place of the guilty.
1: Jesus is taken away with two other accused criminals and nailed to a Roman execution device. And people are mocking him. Hey, if you're the messianic king, save yourself and
2: us. But Jesus loved his enemies to the very end, offering hope to one of the criminals dying beside him. And he even prayed for his executors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And
1: then the sky darkened as an innocent man died the death of a rebel.
2: And then Jesus cried out with ancient words from Israel's Psalms, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus died, innocent and alone.
0: Two days before the events that we just saw there in that video, Luke chapter 22 invited us into the celebration of Passover that that Jesus enjoyed with his closest friends and his disciples as they met to do what had been handed down for for generations, thousands of years prior to the Israelites, as they remembered wiping the blood of the lamb on their door frames of of their homes and saving them from Egyptian bondage. And so God told them, if you remember that day, he says, this is a day that you are to commemorate for the generations to come and shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so Jesus did. But what nobody would yet realize is that Jesus wasn't just celebrating. He was preparing. He was preparing to fulfill everything that had come and had been said before him and about him, and that he himself was preparing to become the real, fulfilled Passover lamb. So when you arrived this morning, um, hopefully during the greeting time, you grabbed one of these. If you, if you didn't, I want to dismiss you now to go grab one of these on the back table. Otherwise, keep that in your hand and, and hold it with you uh, as we go through the text today. During these last few months, we've, we've been dismissing everyone to go outside and partake from the table out in the courtyard. But today, in light of what we're doing, I'd like to invite everyone to stay seated. This is well within the, the health guidelines of San Francisco County. But we're going to partake together in just a moment. And after you have um, you know, leftover uh, plastic, go ahead and, and just place that underneath your seat or somewhere convenient afterwards today. Luke chapter 22, verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Go ahead and make preparations there. And so they left and, and found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so at this time, I'd like to invite you to peel back the, the wrapper on the first layer of your cup, I'm gonna switch to the mic stand here to give me a free hand. As you do, go ahead and pull out the bread and and hold it in front of you for just a moment. If you've already eaten it, can you turn up my mic a little bit so I don't have to be quite as close to it? Is Isn't that any better? Okay. Let's, let's pray over this, this bread that's in our hands right now. Heavenly Father, we, we hold this bread representing Christ's body. And this morning, we ask you to bless it. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, Father, uh, to remember all that it, it represents and all that it fulfills. And so, Father, thank you for giving this to us today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. The text says he he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And if you'd like to break it, I invite you to do that today. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. like you take the cup and peel back the second layer now. Don't drink just yet. Just reveal it and, and hold it. And then I invite you to join me again for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we, we hold this, this cup of, of juice, we recognize it's more than juice. It is the fruit of the vine, and it represents Christ's blood poured out for us. Please bless this cup and all that it represents, that we may recognize it and sit with it and internalize it and understand it and show gratefulness, Father. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Jesus said in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So go ahead and enjoy it. I wanna whoa, now the mic's too hot. I wanna ask that as we move forward from here, that you you take about a minute and sit quietly, sit reflectively with the following question. My question is this, do you have a slide up, Terrell? What has held me captive? What has held me captive? Every single one of us has lived in captivity, even as we proclaim ourselves to be a free people. Our captivity may not be Egypt and Pharaoh, or Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, or Persia and Cyrus and Darius, or even Rome and Caesar. Our captivity is more subtle than that. For some of us, it may be alcohol. For others of us, it may be sex or pornography. For others, it could be gluttony, anger, pride, resentment, abusiveness, greed, and so so much more. the The blessing and the curse here is that sin is the great equalizer for us all. We all sit in it. We all live with it. We all commit it, and all of us have contributed to the crucified Christ. And so as you sit, I want you to take just 60 seconds and reflect on the captivities that you've faced and express thanks to Jesus for setting you free. And then we'll sing. Have you ever watched a a movie or a TV show, or perhaps write a book where, in order for you to appreciate the full significance of what was about to happen, in order for you to see clearly, you first had to go back and kind of review everything that brought you to this point in the story. I think of things I've watched over the years, whether it be Lost on TV, or uh, Lord of the Rings, and The Hobbit, or Star Wars, or even the most recent Marvel movies that my son loves so much, or by the time you get to the end of the story, there are all these little hyperlinks, all of these little references back to something that was teased, something that was foreshadowed so long ago as part of the, the larger, broader story. And so as we reflect on Luke this week, and not just Luke, but, but all four Gospels really that we've covered these last two months or so, the, the need to look back and to remember and to see clearly is deeply, deeply significant. The events that we're talking about today represent the culmination, yes, of a thousand pages of reading that we've done this year, nine months of reading that we've done this year, but for the people in the story, we're talking about people who who lived through thousands and thousands and thousands of years of this stuff. These are very real years lived by very real people. And so as we begin our final reflection this morning, I want you to think back over the entirety of what we've covered, to remember the covenants given to people like Abraham, and David, to remember the words of the, the psalmist and the prophets. And then with all of that rattling around in the back of your head, go ahead and thrust yourself back into the final days and hours of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. Because as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and we've been reflecting on this over and over these last several weeks, if there's anybody, anybody who should be equipped to recognize who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, it should be that those who know those covenants. It should be the people who know those prophets, who know those promises, who know those psalmists, who know those things better than anybody. And yet as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it's the chief priests. It's the teachers of the law, the experts, if you will, who not only don't see, but they don't even want to. They don't even want to. And then you contrast that with the response to somebody like our wee little friend Zacchaeus, wanted to see Jesus so badly, he climbs this massive tree just so he can get a glimpse of who Jesus is. That, that imagery there is, is very intentional by Luke. There are those who want to see, and there are those who don't care at all. So no, as Jesus enters Jerusalem to be enthroned as king by the crowds, it's those Pharisees, it's those experts of the law who ought to see, who ought to know, but they don't. And they call out to Jesus to rebuke and to correct his disciples for what they perceive as false teaching. And all Jesus can say is, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For a moment in time, everything God had said he would do, he did. The promises were fulfilled. The suffering would soon be over. And what lay ahead was another bright future, a future where God would pay the ultimate price to get rid of their sin and ours once and for all. And yet, instead of seeing, they aimed to kill. In Luke chapter 19, it says, Every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. In Luke 20, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Chapter 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was fast approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. And so as Satan enters Judas for the ultimate betrayal, they realize they, they finally got their chance. And the text says that they are delighted. They're delighted, but they're not alone. They're not alone. There are others who don't see the gravity of what's happening. There are others who are blind to who Jesus really is. The guards don't see as the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy! Who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. The council of elders don't see. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation, Rome. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That's not true. And he claims to be Messiah, a king. Herod also doesn't see. says, From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see Jesus perform a sign of some sort. That's all he wanted to see. And so he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And so the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. Even the crowds of people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover don't see And so it says, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. And so as he hung there on that cross, that that sad and dreary Friday, those who were blind to this moment continued... And their blindness. It says the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, hey, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, if he's the chosen one. The soldiers came up, and they mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews, all very sarcastically. And one of the criminals, even, who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And yet, despite the many who were blind, the many who couldn't see, there were glimmers of hope that some might be opening their eyes, that some might be starting to see. It says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God. He says, since you are under the same sentence, don't you fear God? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So what does he say? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so Jesus called out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. But then a centurion, a Roman soldier, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely, this was a righteous man. Of course, the the questions that lingered was not about Jesus' righteousness, Not about Jesus' goodness, but about his deadness. He was dead. Three days dead. Really dead. He was dead. And as we've seen in recent weeks, Jesus told all of his closest friends, all of those people that he broke bread with on a regular basis, he told them plainly what would happen to him. Plainly. And every time their eyes just glazed over, they failed to see what he was saying. Why? Was it because Jesus couldn't explain himself very clearly? No. It's because what Jesus was saying seemed to them like nonsense. It seemed like nonsense. It's like sending someone into an auto parts store to get blinker fluid or muffler bearings, right? It doesn't exist. It's nonsense. It's nonsense to suggest that any man or any woman could raise themselves from the dead. It just doesn't compute. Death is final. It's always been final. It's final now. And because of that, everything that's getting ready to happen in Luke's final chapter suggests that it wasn't just Jesus' critics who failed to see, but even his closest friends and his relatives. The women didn't see. This includes Jesus' own mother. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. You don't go there. You don't do that if you're expecting to find anything other than a dead body. The apostles didn't see, it says, but they didn't believe the women. Even though the women came back with great news of hope, they didn't believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Even though seeing the risen Jesus face to face could not see. It says now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Church, I know this is a theme that, that I've camped out on for, for several weeks, but it's an important theme that is here in Luke's gospel that, that he goes into painful detail to help us see and to demonstrate. What I want you to see this morning is that Jesus was everything that the law had said he would be. Jesus was everything that the prophets had said he would be. And Jesus was everything that he said he would be. And he did everything he said he would do. And yet time and time again, people look past those words and they envision a Messiah who is made and crafted in their own image to envision a warrior, to envision a king like David, to envision a conqueror. And so to be sure, Jesus was those things and more, but he was a king and a warrior and a conqueror who achieved his objectives, not by wielding a sword, but by surrendering to it, by by letting the sword have its way with him, by laying it all down. By letting the serpent strike his heel. But the work of Christ, the victory in Christ, would be revealed on the third day when he, the offspring of Eve, metaphorically crushed the head of that serpent once and for all. Because what is the greatest threat to death? It's life. It's always life. And to that, Jesus says, I am the way. Say it with me. And the truth. And one more time. And and the life. And so when the women arrive at Jesus' tomb with all their spices in tow, preparing to encounter a dead Jesus, you can imagine their shock and their joy when two men who shine like lightning speak to them and they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. He has risen. He says, remember how he told you, ladies. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee. Church, all of this kind of makes you wonder. It makes me wonder how many of us have routinely failed to see the true depth and wonder of the risen Christ? How many of us miss it on a regular basis? Sure, we have the head knowledge, right? We read the stories, we know the right answers, but have we sat with the truth of the risen Christ and allowed it to penetrate our souls? Have we allowed it to change us from the inside out? Do we truly see Jesus as more than just a good teacher? Do we truly see Jesus as more than just an atoning sacrifice so that things aren't messed up for me? Do we understand and can we plainly see that Jesus not only saved us from a death that every single one of us deserves, but he foreshadowed and he modeled for us a day when we too, will rise from the ashes and return to the garden, to the paradise in perfect communion with God once again. Do we see that? Do we understand that? Do we believe that, church? When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, God said, mankind must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So instead, Jesus was nailed to a tree and he invites all of us who believe in him to take of his body and eat and live forever. And so this morning, the risen Christ, the living Christ, invites all of you to lose your life, and in so doing, to find it eternal. And so if you have never received Christ, you have a marvelous opportunity to do so this morning. You can be buried with him in baptism, you can be raised to a new life with Him in baptism. You can receive God's Holy Spirit living within you, and you can live with Him forever. And to that, I invite you. If you're joining us online and you are interested in receiving Christ, you can email me at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. If you are here in this room this morning, we're going to sing in just a moment. I invite you as well. I'll be sitting right here in the front row, or you can talk to me in the courtyard after service today. With that, I invite you, let's stand and let's sing like he's the Messiah, the one true king of your life. Give him everything you have, church.